Good morning. Our Central Texas morning comes from Matthew 6, 7 through 11, and 6, 24 through 34. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And six twenty-four through 34. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks so much, Matthew. Hey, good morning. Uh, my name's Chaz, and as my name tag says, I'm one of the pastors here. Um, anxiety. Pretty relevant topic, huh? Instead of just jumping right in, why don't we pray about that? Because I know all of us battle that. So, Lord, um, I pray that you would enter into this morning our anxiety. We thank you for this passage that tells us it's there, that invites us to pray out of our anxiety, but also invites us to go all the way up and discover with you what truly is the source of it, what is leading us there, what is causing so much of it. This is such a relevant passage, and Lord, I know that you are with us, um, so I do pray that you would calm our anxious hearts and really help us to just settle in and be really thoughtful as we explore together these words that are so important for us right now, particularly right now. In your name we pray, amen. Um, if you get the sermon preview, uh, you'll recognize this story. But, you know, what I mentioned in that is that social psychologists right now have been daylighting what really is an incredibly disturbing trend, which is this. We are getting more and more anxious. And, you know, a lot of times people want to say, well, you know, the youth today, they are so anxious. And there's, there's no doubt about it. I mean, Gen Z is, is incredibly anxious and right behind it. But anybody below the age of 50 right now is growing in their anxiety. Now, I just want to point something out. Notice this right here. What year does it say all of a sudden 
we just got more anxious. 2012, that's right. There you go. And um, the question is, is, what happened in 2012? If you're like me, I don't remember anything disastrous other than Florida lost in the last second against Georgia that year, but, uh, you know, on a goal line stand. But other than that, I mean, I would have expected it to say, you know, September 2001 or March of 2020. Does anybody have any wild ideas what happened in 2012? Just shoot it out. Social media came out. Okay. Ooh, somebody was here a couple months ago and heard me say that. Uh, yes, somebody said smartphones, but what, what my handsome son over here just said, uh, <laughs> over here just said, uh, is social media. And that's what I would have thought. But you know, social media came out in 04, and in 2012, we already knew social media was making us anxious. We had terms, remember? FOMO. Like, we already had that in 2012, fear of missing out. But in 2012, was when the time we all started, smartphones became mainstream. Now, this is not a chicken little sermon warning you about the dangers of smartphones, but it's just simply to point out that folks like Gene Twingy, social psychologist, teaches at San Diego State, Jonathan Haidt, you know, NYU, very published folks, they're all saying this is, what, this is one of the major things that happened. But what, what, what did that do? What did having a smartphone do to us? Well, all of a sudden, I mean, if you're like me, I turn in a flip phone, and the best feature maybe I could even do would be to text, which was really hard back then, okay? It was really hard. And a little crummy photo, uh, camera on there, and then next thing you know, you get this thing, and there's apps. Now my email is with me 24-7. Uh, texting is a lot easier. Uh, and just this cacophony of just dinging and buzzing going on all the time. And what happened is it introduced us to opportunity overload. Opportunity overload. And you'll notice, this really stands out to me. It's not like we stabilized at some point. It's not like around 2015 we kind of settled in and learned how to do this better. It's getting worse. It's getting worse. And, you know, it's interesting, AI now... <laughs> um, you know, it's designed to know you intimately and personally. And what happens, and if you're like me, you might Google something the next day, you know, there's 10 things on there. I watched a, a, a concert last week, and then it, 10 articles on Google. How did it know that? But it's just, it's just designed to say, you have wants, and I've got, look behind this door. There's so many more wants you didn't know about. You want this too. And scientists point out that the more we do that, the more we are presented with wants, the more anxious it makes us. In fact, uh, folks who are working on campus ministry right now, they've said, we've traded in FOMO for another one, FOBO. Okay, not to be confused with FUBU, but FOMO, FOMO is uh, fear of better options. And what's happening is, for example, a lot of folks, you know, they can't, they're having a hard time commit just meeting with a campus minister they're like, well, I'll, I'll let you know as it gets closer because it's not because they're self-centered or terrible at, at all. It's because just, there's this fear of better options that's permeating, okay? I don't know what all this means. I'm not a social psychologist. I'm not here talking about that. My point is this. It just makes these words Jesus spoke really relevant for us today. Do not be anxious for your life. And while we may not be anxious every day for our daily bread... I would argue we are far more anxious than the people Jesus said these words to in the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount 
I want to be clear about something. It's not trite. When Jesus says, do not worry, he's not being dismissive. I would argue these are some of the most humanizing, honest, and richly compassionate words for our souls that we desperately need to hear. But to understand anxiety, we need to swim upstream with Jesus this morning and understand something that you maybe didn't notice about this passage. We'll talk about it a little bit. It starts with this. No one can serve two masters. There's a clear-cut connection. I want you to hear this. Between those who truly try to be the master of their life, try to be in control of everything, and anxiety. And I think that's probably what we're hearing so much with the, the, the youth you know, folks today. It's not kids today. It's not an indictment on them. It's ultimately, we've told them over and over and over again, be in control of your life, and it's increasing anxiety. We weren't designed for that. So there's just two things we're going to look at this morning. The master and anxiety. It's a play on words. And then two, the master who masters our anxiety. So you with me right now? Let's just jump in, okay? All right. Uh, so like I said just a second ago, this is not meant to be uh, trite or anything like that. But, you know, one of the things about this passage, you know, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or drink. You know what? It's, it, it's kind of cute. You know what I mean? It's like the thing you kind of walk into somebody's house, your grandmother's house, and it's knitted on a pillow right there. You know, it's the thing you walk into somebody's house and there's a Thomas Kincaid-ish, you know, photo uh, painting on the wall and it's got this caption underneath it. Do not worry. Do not be anxious for your life. But if you're really battling anxiety today, this is not just, it might not just feel trite. It might actually feel insensitive and dismissive. In fact, if you've been around here from time to time, I've showed this clip. Uh, years ago, Bob, comedian Bob Newhart. Has everybody heard of Bob Newhart? You know, he was on this variety show. It was actually called Mad TV. And he, one of the skits he played uh, was a therapist. And he's a therapist, and in walks his very troubled client. She's just despairing about everything in the world. She's worried about this and the other. Most of her are very irrational. But, you know, of course she needs to see her therapist because that's what you do. And he looks at her, and finally after hearing after everything, he goes, okay, let, let, me just stop. Like, let me just tell you exactly what you need to hear. It's just six letters. S. T-O-P space I-T. Stop it! Stop it! Just stop it! There are many that have used this passage in such a way to say that to others. Gosh, you're bothering me all your worries. Just stop. Have faith. Like, don't worry. That's what Jesus tells you to do. So stop doing it. Because you're driving me crazy. Jesus is not, please hear me, Lacking for compassion here. He is not saying, suck it up, because it is out of his rich compassion that he's coming alongside us to help us with his anxiety. And so we're just going to look at one Greek word that will really help us understand it. And it's the Greek word that some of you might have translated worry in maybe the NIV. And the ESV is trained, uh, uh, translated as anxious. He says, do not be anxious. It's the Greek word marinao. And the first aspect of it tells us it means to be anxious, to be troubled with care. But you can see, and we'll get into it in a second, the Greek has a more nuanced, more complex, very rich definition of the word anxiety. And what you can see in the first sense is there is a sense that we, we Jesus understands you get anxious. Of course you get anxious. There are things worthy of getting anxious about in life. You have an amygdala for a reason. 
That's the flight fight part of your brain if you didn't know that. Okay? You know, if you get a tax bill that you are not expecting, that is light years higher, true story, okay? What happens? You're anxious. We worry. How am I going to pay for that? All of a sudden, you're driving along in your car, and you're listening, you hear this sound. And your thoughts aren't great in that moment, are they? You're already thinking through, I'm going to have to buy an entire new car. Or maybe that's my transmission. You know, you walk around at work, and all of a sudden, you notice one week, your boss's door continues to just closed. And other folks, you know, in management, they're in the office too. And what, what are you doing? <laughs> You're thinking, I know what's coming. I'm getting fired this week. They're in there talking about me. They're, there's going to be a round of layoffs. When Jesus is dealing with anxiety, he's looking at men, his disciples, and he's looking at them in the eye, and they're tired because you know what? Every day of their life, they're wondering where's the next meal coming from. They're traveling with him. They don't know where they're going to sleep day to day. And when Jesus says in the Lord's prayer, prayer to pray for our daily bread, it's compassion because he's saying, we do have things that make us anxious, but we must take these things in prayer. But that's point number two. What I want to point out here is this other aspect, an unseen gem here in Scripture of understanding how the Bible views anxiety. And you'll notice this doesn't seem to say anything about anxiety. Anxiety and also the other aspect of anxiety is to mean, to, is to really ultimately to seek to promote one's interest. In other words, there's this sense in which we look at the passage and it all begins here. Before we get to don't be anxious about your life, it begins with no one can serve two masters. You either love the one or hate the other. Or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, See that? He's connecting this to all of this, okay? And yes, of course Jesus here was talking about making money your master, but why does somebody make money their master? If you and I make money our master, it's, it's not just because we love money so much, it's because we love control. We think money will allow us to be master of our lives, and we begin to put our hopes in them. We begin to dream that if there's just a little bit more, all of a sudden we'll get the peace and this control and security that we so long for. But what Jesus is inviting us to consider is where your anxiety is, there your control will be also. If you and I go out into the world and we are desperately seeking to control our lives, anxiety will flow from it. We, but that's not how we think, is it? Is that how you think? Most of us think that ultimately the more control we get over our lives, the more peace we'll have. You know, Martin Luther, you know, obviously uh, instrumental in the Protestant Reformation, he had a, a real powerhouse of a, a friend, Philip Melanchthon. Uh, he was this, an intellectual giant. And here, here's the both of them. They're, they're the people who are teaching everybody about the trust and faith and the sovereignty of God. And yet Philip Melanchthon was intensely anxious. And there would just be times his thoughts would just get ahead of him. And Martin Luther would just nestle up next to him, put his hand on his shoulder and whisper into his ear and say to him, let Philip cease to run the universe. He didn't say, let Philip stop worrying. Don't worry. Where did he begin? He said, let Philip cease to run the universe. In the words of Tears for Fears, everybody wants to rule the world. 
And that was a concert I watched the next day. And then, then I got all the things the next day in my Google. No matter how much you and I tell ourselves God is in control of our lives, I would argue say, no. Do you know what we're really like when it comes to this? We're like my mom was when I was 15 and driving for the first time. And the next thing I know, she's pumping some brake that's not there in the passenger seat. <laughs> we'll just put it this way. My mom was not a non-anxious presence in that moment, right? She was not a non-anxious presence. That's what happens to us. We think that we're giving, we trust God, we're using control, but we battle this. And I just want you to hear, if there's only one thing you hear, and I don't have it on a slide, but I want you to hear this. The human heart was not designed to be in control. The human heart was not designed to bear the weight of attempting to be in control of our lives. We are not hardwired like this. God did not design us to do that. And even though there's all these different things, and many of us battle control issues for sure. I mean, a friend of mine tells me that. I, I hear about it, you know, whatever, in theory. Um, and we all battle control issues, but the reality is, is still, no matter how much controlling we tend to be, it's not how we're actually hardwired. No matter how convinced we are, we fear more than anything else in life losing control. There's an interesting thing, you know, this point, I was reminded of it this week, uh, listened to a different podcast, but you know, our literature, you know, great works, you know, sort of speak to this. How many of us had to read George Orwell's 1984, right? Remember that? It was odd, okay? And, but of course, we all kind of know it's an acronym we still kind of, or phrase we use today. What did we fear most in 1984 happening to us? What did we fear? Rhymes with rig brother, big, big brother. Are y'all with me or what? We, okay, who did we fear? Let's try again. Big brother. We're going to be interactive today, okay? Because this is, it affects all of us. Yeah, so, but the year 1984 came around and we all went, phew, that didn't happen. But there was an interesting book by a man named Neil Postman. And in 1984, he wrote about this. And he wrote a book titled Amusing Ourselves to Death. Now, I have not read it because you know what he was doing. He was warning us about the dangers of television, okay? I'm like, well, that's not a relevant read. But then I was reminded just this week of something I've heard that he did in this book. He contrasts, there were two futures people thought were going to happen. There was George Orwell's 1984, the dystopian future, Big Brother's coming. But uh, I'll just Huxley wrote before that a book called A Brave New World. And it was sort of dystopian. I want you to just read, I'm going to read the quote. This is from Neil Postman. He says, we were keeping our eye on 1984. When the year came and the prophecy didn't, thoughtful Americans sang softly in praise of themselves. The roots of liberal democracy had held. Wherever else the terror had happened, we at least had not been visited by Orwellian nightmares. But we had forgotten that alongside Orwell's dark vision, there was another slightly older, slightly less well-known, equally children, Aldous Huxley's brave new role. And contrary to common belief, even among the educated, Huxley and Orwell did not prophesy the same thing. Orwell warns that we'll be overcome by an externally imposed oppression, but in Huxley's vision, no big brother is required. It's not required to deprive people of their autonomy, maturity, and history as he saw 
People will come to love their oppression, to adore the technologies that undo their capacities to think. Now, what is the point? Orwell thought and feared, tapped into that primal fear we all have, losing control by big brother. Huxley said, don't worry about it. In your pursuit of being in control, you will be controlled. When you live for yourself and attempt to be your own master, all of a sudden you go out in the world and you saw that definition earlier, you are seeking to please yourself all the time. And when that happens, you become addicted to that. I mean, look, I'm not trying to, again, bring up smartphones, but AI is designed to know you intimately and personally and constantly tell you this is what you want all of the time. Not saying what you need, but this is what you want all of the time. And we're overloaded with that. Gen Z is the most anxious generation we have ever had. And it is not because they lack resiliency or just kids these days. They just need to toughen up. It's an indictment on us, the cultural narrative saying, be in control of your life. And now what is the result? We have data. It's not working. It doesn't work when you live like this. The human heart was not meant to be in control. So let's take a look at our last point. So Jesus says, therefore, do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things and your heavenly father knows you need him. And there's a lot of people who kind of look at this and it almost sounds like Jesus is like Bobby McFerrin. Remember that song in the 80s, Don't Worry, Be Happy, right? And that'll be stuck in your head the rest of the day. Uh, it sounds like that. Hey, just don't worry, man. Don't, just be happy. But when Jesus uses this word Gentile, he's talking about the person who goes out into the world. It, it was obviously a term for a person who was not Jewish, but what was that also meaning? It was meaning it's the person who has no heavenly father, who has, who's going out into the world and saying, it's up to me. Like, it has to happen through me. Like, if I want something to happen in this life, it's going to be me and what happens is then there's just this ceaseless and endless striving of life, of going after things and saying, I have, I have to have this because otherwise I will not be in control. But what Jesus is doing here, he's inviting us to take a, a deep look at a question is, do I know I have a heavenly father? Do I trust him? Do we know he's good? Do we, not just that he's capable, but do we know that he's good? And that's what these illustrations all point to. So Jesus, you know, he points, first of all, to birds of the air. Now, we've got a lot of financial planners here in the church. I can guarantee you not one of you uh, has a bird as a client. <laughs> Why? Because birds are really good at flying, but you know what they're really terrible at? Retirement planning. <laughs> they're not good at it, okay? And uh, by the way, birds are real, just saying. So, hey, Some of y'all got that. That's good. But you know, a bird... What does a bird do? Think about it. Jesus wants you to think. Think. What does a bird do? A bird does not sit around all day thinking about what they want. A bird is only, only considering what they need. You know what a bird is able to do perfectly besides fly? We can't fly, but we also can't do something else a bird does really well in. A bird can live in that space of enough, of enoughness. It's almost really, almost impossible, it seems like, for the human heart. You know, a worm is not, I mean, I'm sorry, a bird is not staying up all night thinking, you know, 
gosh, I, was, I didn't get many worms yesterday. I'm going to die a cold and brutal death today. A worm is not sitting there dealing with comparison envy. You know, gosh, those robins, their eggs, they're so beautiful. Why aren't mine like that? You know, they're not worrying about expanding their nest. <laughs> a bird is doing something that they were designed to do. They're able to perfectly do that we don't. They don't feel like they have to be in control. And again, notice something. God is saying, look, but <laughs> look how God takes care of them. Look how he does this. They don't, they're not sowing and reaping. They're not doing any of these things. They're not planning at their futures. They're not even worried about tomorrow, and yet he feeds them. And which of you being anxious can add a single hour to his span of his life? That's not to say that God somehow drops worms like manna from the sky. He gave them resources to hunt and to do what they need to do. But see, God, in the beginning, we were in a garden, and God didn't, before the fall, drop food from the sky like manna. We were called to cultivate, to till, and to sow, to learn the rhythms of the land, sunshine and rain. But you know one thing we didn't do? We didn't do it apart from him. God was with Adam and Eve in the garden as they sowed and tilled. God would take walks in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve right outside of the garden. They weren't seeking to be in control at that moment. But one of the challenges that this passage is not raised for any of us, because it doesn't take it up, is a cold, hard fact that birds do die. <laughs> they do die, especially around my house in the summertime. My cat, Tunsis, man, he takes them out quite a bit in the summer months. This passage doesn't answer those questions for us. I trusted him, and this didn't happen. There are plenty of disciples around the world starving to death right now, trusting him. And there are plenty of people who do not believe, and they live in ex excess. Jesus is not saying faith equals perfect provision and a lack of faith. Well, that's, you're not going to have much. What Jesus is asking you to do is to think and say, consider the posture of a bird. They live as they are designed to be, and we aren't. Are we willing to trust him in the areas that are most hard? You know, for me, there are many areas I think I trust the Lord, and, and that's probably true. It is true. But then there are really plenty of areas of my life that I feel are more critical and more important. And you know what? All of a sudden, you know what happens? You just begin to ask the question, how much do I really trust him in this area? With my money. With my health. With my child. And the question for any of us when we have anxiety is never a question of, can God really do this? It's never a question of his ability or his sovereignty or his power. It's always a question of his goodness. And do you and I believe that? That he can meet us in these things. That he wants to be in, with us in these things. And that's what the second one does for us. You know, it's different. You know, birds do go out and they're out in the yard and looking for worms and all these different things. And, but the lilies of the field? What do they get done? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> they just sit out there and the sun bathes them and the photosynthesis takes over and then the rain comes on them. And the next thing you know, this, these are really grasses. This is wildflowers he's talking about. Here are these grasses that serve no purpose other than when they're dead, they just get used for fuel in an oven. And the next thing you know, they're covered in all this beauty. I was reading a book just this week, uh, author Chris Bruno, in a book, The Sage. 
He tells a story about when he was about 11,000 feet up in Colorado in the Alpine country. He and the folks he was with, they come to this meadow and it just opens up and it's just almost like something from the kingdom of God right there. An entire meadow just covered with a variety of wildflowers and it occurred to him in that moment, we might be the only people who even lay eyes on this. And somebody in the group said to this, oh, the extravagant waste of God. Beauty. Beauty we hardly even ever touch or smell or see. And what does that reveal? It reveals the heart and the beauty of God that he lavishes on us like that. And it points to this extravagant love of God, which is not a waste. But it's also a stern warning of the temporality of life because these grasses do die. The grasses die and the flowers do fade. And the truth is, so do we. So I just want to say, for those who battle anxiety, and that's a good chunk of us, you need to grab your heart right now. And you need to take your brain with Jesus to think. And the first thing you need to do is ask yourself, do I know that if I build my kingdom, it is destined to perish? That might sound horrific, morbid, but the cold hard facts of this, everything you are building for yourself right now is destined to perish. It will not last. Everything in your hands will slip through it at your death. That is a fact. That is an absolute fact. But if you're battling anxiety, you can rip some of that away right now knowing that and doing business with the reality that everything you're so consumed with right now is going to be lost. It's, it's a guarantee. And that is liberating if you allow it. It can realign you to the heart of God too. You need to grab your heart right now and ask yourself, what kingdom am I really living for? Do I really believe I have a heavenly father who is good, who truly is my master, and who truly can be my father? You know, Jesus, when the disciples, were, they did the miracle, uh, the multiplication of loaves and fishes, and, you know, afterwards, after this happened, some of the crowds came after Jesus. They were looking for him. And they even say, you know, they come up to Jesus, you know, he says, um, I'm sorry, they came up to him, they're looking and they're like, hey, I'm looking for food, you know, you're looking for more bread. Well, let me, let me point out to you. I'm having a hard time seeing this, I apologize. But anyway, he, hang on, let's get this right. Somebody help me out here. Maybe I don't have it on here. Okay, well, never mind. Just ignore the last 30 seconds. Okay. And they came up to him, and Jesus is like, wait, you're looking for food that perishes. And he uses this whole analogy. I just ruined all that. There you go. But anyway, Jesus was adorned with far greater beauty than any other wildflower of the field. As they come up to him looking for food, he's reminding them, look, you're looking for the loaves, but they're not, this is not what's going to fulfill you. He, Jesus said, I'm the bread of heaven. Come down to us. When we eat of this bread, which is in front of us here, to commune with him, we are reminded that it was his broken body for us, his blood shed for us. And while it is immensely encouraging to take note of all the great provisions God has provided for us, many of which can help us loosen the grip we have 
that wants to control everything. Well, there are beautiful sunsets and vistas filled with wild beauty that can grab our hearts to remind us of his kindness, love, and beauty. It is only at the cross that can truly change our hearts to say, our Father. Jesus is the bread of life. I want to invite those who are coming up from worship and disciples. Jesus is the bread of life. And it's truly only at the cross that can change our hearts to say, Our Father. And that's what this table is. It's not just a reminder. The promise is that Jesus is with us as we partake of this meal. And to each of us, he says, Look, <laughs> consider. Consider my broken body, my shed blood, the extravagant love of God poured out for you. What Jesus is doing for us here in communion, he, Jesus tenderly saddles up to us right in this. And he puts his arm around us. And he whispers into our ears, cease to rule the world. Let me pray for us as they're preparing us. Lord, um, such a relevant necessary passage for us to pray our anxieties, but not just to pray them, but also to think and to consider and to grab our hearts. But Lord, this is a reality that many struggle with for various reasons, from trauma to disorders to different chemical imbalances in their brain. Lord, you have invited us with compassion to really look at our anxieties. There are many things in our lives that point to the fact that we are trying to be the master of our lives, and you, it is only until we encounter you in your goodness, the extravagant love of God poured out for us that can turn our hearts to say, you are worthy of all of my trust and all of my worship. I pray that you would meet us and nourish us in this meal. In your name we pray.